Adriel Hampton, so good to have you here. We really appreciate you swinging by to talk about your campaign, to talk about COVID in California and all of the things that are going on. And we just appreciate you generally as a person. Welcome everyone to the show, Adriel Hampton. Hey, it's great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, just for the record, you're allowed to call yourself a two-time guest now. Just because That's we right. just because we screwed up and lost the first recording that we did with you, you know, you get to take the credit. So this is this is two-time guest, friend of the show, Adriel Hampton in the house today. I'll clap clap for myself for that one. <laughs> you should. This is the only the third time in our history that we have lost an episode for technical reasons. We lost the Samer Hernandez episode, which is oh. still remains a huge bummer. Aqua, uh, we, we messed up Aqua's episode for weird recording reasons. And you were victim number three. Um, <laughs> we're, always, we're always looking to reduce these issues. But it's even better when somebody's like, yeah, I'll do this all over again. An hour is not a, is not a trivial amount of time. I mean, we, we have the privilege when we do these shows. We talk about things in a lot more depth and detail. And I think that guests like that, like you come on and you can just say what you want to say. And there's nobody that's like in the wings fucking hurrying you along. Right. So, yeah, it's no, good it's not like when people. I was I was in the uh, uh, ready room for MSNBC. They literally got me in the chair and in the chair, like seven minutes waiting, waiting, waiting. And then they're like, no, we're just not, you know, you're bumped <laughs> by breaking news. And then I went home, you know. Uh, that was the end okay, of uh, that was actually when I announced for governor when I was uh, fighting Facebook over their policies allowing fake ads only for politicians and then they said well you're running for governor and saying you're gonna do that on purpose and I was like yeah like the president and they said well we're still gonna you know censor you and so everyone was interested but it was it was one of those like technical human interest stories and then breaking news started happening and and that was the end of my viral moment but losing an episode is not that I'm going to do something totally fucking weird, which is I'm just going to tell Ooh. you like what the what the episode title was going to be. Oh, because, well, we had two we had two winners, but I'm going to use the one that was a quote of you, which was you can't fix the old world. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think you said this like kind of offhandedly. And I was like, God damn, because we are, I think, struggling like in a transition from world A to world B. And for you as someone who lives in California and me as someone who lives in Georgia, the activism in Georgia is very like, boy, you know, if we were to get a few wins, we could become something called a blue state. And when you join a blue state, civilization happens. The world just opens up to you and people are treated fairly. The bullshit just melts away. You are in California, which is the largest blue state in the world. It's the archetypical blue state. And it sucks. Like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Like we interview people who are in like Washington, Illinois, California, New York all the time. And like there are systemic problems that are in blue states that like activism still has to continue. Like the fight still has to continue. So, and as you, as someone who is running for governor, what are some of the things that you have seen in California politics that inspires you to say, wait, I need to put pressure on our governor. I need to run for public office. I need to get the activist community together. And we've got to like solve some of these problems that exist. I know that's a big question, <laughs> but like, What's the, what's yeah. the what are the politics like in the fifth largest economy in the world? I know that's a lot. 
It's a, it, it is a lot, but it's a, it's really good. And I think that um, we might think about something like the French neoliberal government, right, with, with Emmanuel Macron, yeah. who is uh, not popular with leftists. And what's interesting about how the protests, including the Yellow Vest movement, they're covered like these people are some kind of like troublemakers, etc. But they have a very clear political agenda. And it's an anti austerity, it's workers rights, like people want self determination. And that comes from a stable society with an economy that works for the working class and the poor. And that's what California does not have as well. So you could almost look at at some of the corollaries, I think, to a country like France. And you know, I'm like pulling that one out of my hat, just because I think the protest movements in France have been consistent for a long time, fighting neoliberalism, in California, it's a really big state, you know, geographically, and you have sustained protest movements uh, since the uh, George Floyd killing in like Los Angeles, but you don't uh, so much anywhere else because there's not a critical mass of activism. So what are what are the things happening in California that say like we need a left challenge to Gavin Newsom? And I, I like to say like it's not about making Adriel Hampton famous or making Adriel Hampton governor. It's about getting what we need in California for seven and a half million people in California live below the poverty line. And that's the uh, the federal poverty line. And it's expensive as all hell to live in many places in California. So this state has very severe inequality, very severe poverty. There's uh, at least 150,000 people who are unhoused in California. It's a hell of a lot of people, real people like you and I, who are not getting even their most basic needs met. And then you look at the history of the politics of California and it being this great blue state, you know, you have Nancy Pelosi is the Speaker of the House and she's the representative from San Francisco and everybody thinks that's great. And then you have Gavin Newsom, who is the the governor and he's like related to Pelosi by marriage. And there's these political... I didn't know that shit. Whoa, whoa. Yeah, and and I think it's... What's the deal with that? I don't know the exact... I'm like not into like examining the family trees because to me what's what's important are the policies but you have an insular group of dynasty politicians backed by a powerful democratic machine that's probably not as powerful now as it was a decade ago because two two things one is when Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor he was trying to push through reforms that democrats didn't like because the Republicans liked them because they were so out of power, except for Schwarzenegger, that they wanted to make California a top two state like uh, Washington. So you have these top two primaries. And so now you have Democrats facing Democrats, and that starts to give progressives a chance to build power because they can run for office cycle after cycle and have candidates to back. And those candidates don't necessarily have to be a member of a specific political party. So they can be Democrats. In my case, when Gina Haspel was confirmed by the Senate as head of the CIA, I uh, exited the Democratic Party. Didn't make a big deal. I'm like not a big like dim exit advocate, but for me personally, and also being in California where you can vote in Democratic primaries uh, as a nonpartisan voter and you can uh, run for office and, and not be like super marginalized by not being part of a political party. Being a part of a political party is how you get a Gavin Newsom. You have, you know, his his dad was a judge, like he was kind of like groomed for being a political star from a young age. Like if you talk to folks in San Francisco, it's a very small kind of world. And the other thing that happens is 
PG&E, which is the Northern California Electric Utility, Electricity and Gas, it's Pacific Gas and Electric. Uh, and then in Southern California, you have a giant utility as well. And these big private corporations that should be like Tennessee Valley Authority, they should be uh, public, they should be owned by the public, in my opinion. One of them in Southern California runs the big, there was a, a gas leak that affected many, many families, like, you know, gas is invisible, and it just kind of settles in when there's a giant gas leak. And they're running the same gas facility now, even though just a few years ago, it had this massive disaster in Northern California with PG&E, the, in San Francisco, they've tried for years, decades to get a public control over PG&E's infrastructure in San Francisco. Like they wanted to do eminent domain. It was on the ballot multiple times. And Gavin Newsom has been a staunch defender of kind of the corporate, the corporations that are well-established, that make billions of dollars for uh, Wall Street and for investors, and that have been responsible for a lot of cost-cutting that's cost California. So we had a lot of fires. We had a town called Paradise burn to the ground recently. And it's PG&E's lack of maintenance of its lines that leads to these fires because they fall apart. Right. And same thing with the underground lines. We had an explosion in San Bruno. PG&E is like, was criminally liable in that case. And yet they bankroll our governor and they even heavily fund his wife's nonprofit film company or film or, you know, nonprofit organization that does films. And so the corporations and these Democratic politicians are intertwined to the point that when even in a state of emergency, and this is the big thing that Lauren Nicole, my uh, policy advisor for the campaign, we've been working a lot on looking at the policies around COVID because the poor are suffering the most, there's a huge opportunity to tax the rich and heal the poor. And that's not what's happening. We're seeing austerity policy. We're seeing relinquishing the kind of public health dialogue to right-wing extremists, reopening without taking care of basic needs. And that's one of the things that we're actually out here on podcast talking about is COVID austerity and how we could do government differently by taxing the rich, by looking at government as, as a force for stabilizing and lifting up rather than uh, maintaining the status quo. I have such an interesting question for you. Well, first of all, I want to say Nancy Pelosi is Gavin Newsom's auntie, y'all, like by marriage. Like you just you you took us to Westeros, bro. I didn't know we were oh, going. Oh no! There. <laughs> I think about that. You know, that's the Westeros metaphor is always good because in elections you have to win, and so sometimes right. you have to make alliances that aren't alliances you would make in any other situation. You might be fighting each other, but <laughs> yeah, the establishment, Democratic establishment, is like the uh, you know the White Walkers. They're like you know it's hard to beat them. <laughs> oh, see, I was I was going to say the Republicans are the White Walkers and the Democrats are the Lannisters. But that's a good that's also a good. Uh, <laughs> the, the Republicans in California are really, really, really marginalized. And so that's true. That gives the Democrats all this space. Whoa, to whoa, do, whoa. To you got to watch. You know? we, can't, we can't have that as a clip on here. So, <laughs> I, the, National Review Wait. is going to clip this. They're going to. 
Look, look, we finally have the proof. Republicans <laughs> are being marginalized. They said it on the left-wing podcast. <laughs> but, but really, no, that is actually a good metaphor if you think of like California as King's Landing or whatever, and this is where all the palace intrigue is. And meanwhile, the fucking White Walkers are here. You guys aren't being affected by the White Walkers, which is why you're having all this bickering. Right. The rest of us, like basically uh, the, the, the Deep South is the wall, and we're the ones that are like, we're getting the zombie fights all day, every day. It's not Yeah, great. yeah. No, that's true. That's true. And over here, it's all about whether it's going to be Gavin Newsom or Kamala Harris for the next decade, you know, in terms right. of being the most exactly. popular. Or Adriel Hampton. <laughs> I we we uh, we use the hashtag R California, and it's it's hard because a lot of the folks in well, Brandon, you had a big question, and we got sidetracked by the Lannisters and and Westeros. Okay, yeah, let's let's do that, and then we'll come back. <laughs> oh, to you it. still have a um, big question? Yeah. yeah, I still have a big question. So, and you may weasel or punt this question. Ah, like we've talked about like privately marketing and your background and how that is very beneficial in certain ways to like organizing and movement building. So, what are your what are the strengths that you are bringing to the table, and also what are the limitations? That a that a person who is entering left politics from business faces. Like, what are the places that you have had both as strengths and as like weaknesses where you've had to bring people in to help you? Right, that's a good question. My strength, I think, is creating a voice either for the voiceless or for issues that are not being addressed. And so I did this thing where like AOC and Mark Zuckerberg were, she was grilling Mark Zuckerberg on Capitol Hill last October about how Facebook allows politicians to lie. And one of the things she said was like, could I make a fake Green New Deal ad that said that my political opponents endorse the Green New Deal? And Mark Zuckerberg said, basically, you could, right? And so I have freelancers and colleagues and creative people that I work with uh, in my business because I have a a small strategy firm. We do mostly left-wing political campaigns, not all for candidates, but we have done a number of candidate campaigns. We also like launch a lot of stuff and like help people like get their website off the ground or get their fundraising program off the ground, all on the digital side because that that is my area of strength. But we made an ad that showed uh, it was all about how conservatives are great environmentalists and historically have been great environmentalists and need to get back to that. And then it had because it had like Teddy Roosevelt and they had like Reagan. Reagan was not good, but he had some good rhetoric that like fits in this kind of ad, which is a fake ad. It's not real because that's not what the Republican Party is right now. And it's not really where they want to go at all. But then it had Lindsey Graham and it spliced him talking about the environment and then spliced it just enough that he says, I endorse the Green New Deal or I support the Green New Deal. And then we were able to advertise that on Facebook. So I have a, a political action committee that's a federal <laughs> Pack, and it's called the Really Online Lefty League. And so we got this ad out there and we started getting, we alerted the press because the idea was not to fool people. It was to point out the hypocrisy. Yes, AOC, you could run this ad and see here we are doing it. The ad ran very, very briefly because Facebook shut it down and they said, well, our rules say that if you're a politician, you don't get fact checked. But if you're a PAC, we can still fact check you. So basically only parties and politicians. So then I 
researched what it would take to run for office in California. And really, all you have to do is give notice to the, I believe it's the Fair Political Practices Commission or the Secretary of State or both, because they both handle different parts of the process. And it just needed to be postmarked. And so I filled out the form, took it to the post office, asked the postmaster to take a picture of me holding the envelope, you know, with the postmark, gave it back. And then I was a candidate. That stunt went like super viral global news coverage for for a few to few days and one what they kept saying like on CNN and stuff was like well you are a marketer and it's like the skills of a marketer are usually to I mean, I think a good marketer is able to make things happen that don't happen without that strategy and that eye to achieving a goal. It's different than like advertising, which you can just pour money into building awareness. I think the skills that I have are like, how do you get people to think and make something happen that wouldn't happen without your ideas? So like basically taking ideas and creating them into reality. Now, you step back, I... um, Let's not use the word weaknesses. Let's let's purge that from the record. What did you see? Because we're we're all salespeople. What did you seek to add? What did, what did you, I seek to add? To yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting because one of the things that I'm learning is that it's good, and and this is something that's that's been a recurring theme in my career because I've worked in technology startups off and on before I started my agency. That was like for five years. That was kind of the thing I was doing. And in terms of playing to your strengths, like I also need people around me who are good at building coalitions, and so you actually need people around you who have similar strengths as well, so that you can extend yourself because a, a single person, a single politician is only going to have so many hours in the day and so much bandwidth. And then I was talking about Lauren working on policy. That's been a huge addition is having someone who's just looking at like the news releases from the governor's website, the public health reports, the public health orders, the executive orders coming in through COVID and analyzing those and breaking them down into something that we can use in the campaign. Eventually, I will have to work with fundraisers depending on how we decide to go forward. I have built a brand on being able to get media attention and coverage with very little money. But if we actually have field crews and people who are building community in rural California and up and down the state, you know, it's 40 million people in the state. And my uh, wife said to me at some point in, in 2017, when I was working with a, a lieutenant governor campaign, she was like, why do people spend so much money? I said, well, if you have to reach, say, say there's 20,000 voters and say you decide that there are 5,000 excuse me, 20 million voters, million voters, you decide that there are 5 million that you want to reach. And even if you're reaching them very, very cheaply, you're still talking millions of dollars to reach those people. And you want to reach them multiple times and you want to reach them, you know, both through uh, maybe, you know, a couple of mailers and a bunch of digital ads. And you want them to have at least one conversation with an organizer or with a volunteer on the phone or in person. And you're talking massive amounts of money and infrastructure that you have to build. Fundraising is something I'm good at on the digital side, but like, it's also something that as a socialist and someone who has been accused of wanting to burn it all down. It's like hard to go to rich people and get them to give you money the way Gavin Newsom does. And the finance limits here are way higher than they are for like running for Congress. Like you can raise over $20,000 from a business or from an individual or from both. So it's easy if you have connections with rich people to start raising that money. But that's not that's not where I'm coming from. A weakness is that I, I no, it's it's a strength that I don't have a bunch of people who are trying to uh, influence government for their own financial ends who are interested in my candidacy. Hell yeah. That was very good.
Yeah. So listen, as we kind of talk about like the the awareness end, let's talk a little bit about housing reform because mm -hmm. I think that's one of the things where that awareness needs to be built. What is the housing situation like in California? We're obviously in a national situation where people are facing eviction. In fact, one of our, our favorite guests, Mary Hollywood, talks a lot about the rent situation in Los Angeles and mobility and things like that. What is that situation like in your state and what are changes that would be made to make that more equitable in your opinion? Yeah. So I have friends in San Francisco who are working on, uh, I think what may end up being a really good model for cities getting back into public housing. We have a lot of federal disincentives for public housing. I believe it's called the Faircloth Act that doesn't allow cities to build further public housing. And so we actually have to fight at the federal, state, and local level in order to invest more of society's money into building housing. But there is uh, one of the things that's happened that I think is is very difficult. I was a reporter in San Francisco almost 20 years ago now. And at the time, uh, and today, it continues to be that a lot of public money goes into nonprofit housing corporations, and then they get very cozy with the city government. And so there's very little like uh, radical influence. And we end up with 150,000 people unhoused, you end up with like very bloated budgets for building housing, instead of looking at this is an emergency when you have 150 thousand people unhoused when you have right now we have 25 percent unemployment in the state because of covid and that is going to start leading to mass evictions so california had a real housing problem before covid hit part of it being it's not an easy problem at all because there's folks who say just build more housing, build more housing. But the housing that for-profit developers want to build is more expensive housing that has a good profit margin for the investors. And what we really need is more housing that's affordable or that's deeply subsidized. Part of what the governor started to do under COVID was turn unused hotel rooms into housing for the homeless. But less than 10% of the 150,000 have been housed during the state of emergency. If I were governor at this time, and one of the things Lauren and I talk about a lot is what could Gavin Newsom do right now to really help people with this crisis of being in a living through a pandemic, like the worst pandemic in 100 years in California and the US and globally. And one of those things is he could use his emergency powers. We were talking about this on the on the, the lost episode that those emergency powers are almost unlimited. And you know, he's ordering businesses open and shut on like a weekly basis based on what's happening at the pandemic. But what he hasn't ordered is that rents are waived for the duration of the state of emergency, that evictions are off the table for the state uh, during the state of emergency. And also landlords will complain and say, well, if I don't get rent, how do you pay my mortgage? And that's kind of bogus because so many of the landlords now after the foreclosure crisis, uh, which is one of the things that really radicalized me in the late 2000s, 2008, 2009, like living through that and seeing friends and, and including my own family be deeply affected, losing property, you know, which is, which is where a lot of Americans hold their savings. We could also tell the banks like, fuck off, you're not collecting mortgages, you know, add a year on the end, but you're not collecting them right now. And our governments have that kind of power, but they don't use it. They don't fight hard enough. They don't take the banks to court and all the way to the Supreme Court if they have to. I worked for this politician, Gail McLaughlin, uh, who ran for lieutenant governor in the 18 race. And 
her claim to fame was that she had tried to do imminent domain on underwater mortgages during the mortgage crisis, during the financial crisis. And the banks went all the way to Congress and got a law changed so that a city could not do that. And that's what is happening in our government and in our society is that the interests that are predatory interests are the ones that have the ear of the politicians. In California, I think the worst thing that's happening with COVID, it's housing, I think, is like the thing. Because if your housing is not stable, like how are you going to survive and be healthy? But secondly, like we have a blueprint for Medicare for All. It's called SB 562. And it was Medicare for All for the state. And Gavin Newsom ran in 2018 on single payer for California. And then when he got in, it's all about, well, if the federal government does it, we'll do it. If the federal government gives us money, we'll take care of things. If the federal government gives us money. And you saw him with COVID being very cozy publicly with the president. And I think that was his attempt to try to mollify Donald Trump enough to get federal money, which the states and the cities do need. But it was hilarious because, again, last episode, I, I'm going to like repeat one of my gaffes from that because I was like, what are there, like 20,000 millionaires and billionaires in California? And Lauren's like, no, there's a million. It's like a million yeah. people who are who have a, you know a million dollars or more in California. And instead of using that that state of emergency and saying, you know what, we're going to tax the rich and we're going to like stabilize our state, provide a lot of relief on our state, and then the economy will stabilize and everyone will continue. You know, it's like, it's not even like you would say you can't have wealth. It would be like, let's use the wealth to make sure our state is healthy. But instead, our politics are so diseased that people, including governors like Gavin Newsom and Cuomo, will coddle the rich even while the poor are like unhoused, starving, dying. And that's how bad it is. And this is in a, a blue state. Now, I live in a suburb and it is great. It's like, you know, this is California at its finest. There's like palm trees all over the place. And I mean, LA is very, very nice. But the crushing poverty for millions of people is just wrong. I, my campaign is is inspired by Upton Sinclair's In Poverty in California campaign in 1934. He had a lot more backing than I do. I think it was because Republicans were in control at the time and the Democrats were looking for a savior and they looked to a utopian. Here, we have utopian dreams for California and I think that we just have to keep talking about them. And that's one of our, literally one of our strategies is just let's go on as many left pods as we can and talk about that we could have utopia but our leaders won't let us right when you talk about like the sickness of the system and this really seems to like pertain to like a lot of the things that we're sort of discussing here it seems like there's this tendency like in the same way that our government like demanded backdoors into like software and like you know processors and all these things it seems like our political process sort of has these back doors now that are just sort of baked in from the start to prevent anything from like really changing or getting done or being better. And the eviction crisis is like a great example of that in a lot of ways, because like I know that California has a somewhat similar situation in some ways and a lot of the, a lot of blue states do as to what we have here in New Mexico. And it's funny because New Mexico a lot of times has this terrible rep in the news. And for once, like we're in the news for a good thing because like our governor keeps being praised for her handling of the COVID crisis on, in these different ways. And it's all, it's all mediocre when you're actually living here, let me tell you. Yeah. It's like, uh, you know, she, sure, she goes on MSNBC and acts like, yes, yeah, she's the savior who's making everything great. But 
the eviction crisis right now. So we have a quote unquote, like forestallment of evictions that uh, Michelle Lujan Grisham passed, right? That she signed into uh, some kind of order. And it's not stopping people from being evicted because it's it's worded with back doors in it. It's like I'm saying, it's like the processors and, and stuff. It's that back door thing where it's like, there was always a way for them to use this to, to fuck us. And it, there was like, there was never actually a, a way for this to be good because the entire thing is predicated on something where all your landlord has to do is come say, oh, well, they're not doing the thing that's the exception, right? Right. You know, whatever that is, you know, in some in some places, it could be something like gardening, right? So like you're in a pandemic trying to like make some extra food for yourself and your lawn and your, you know, freaking landlord could come in. Oh, they're destroying the property. Uh, so I'm, I'm allowed to evict them, even though it's a pandemic. So I'm sure you're seeing a lot of the same kind of stuff there. In fact, I know for a fact that you are. I want you to talk about that if you're uh, willing, but also to kind of get into how do we like root out a sickness where like this stuff is just baked in from the very beginning? How do we like stop some of that in your opinion? Right, right. And this, again, something I said last time on the show, I think is really important is that the left is stronger and larger as a community than in our political history. Like, even if you go back to the 60s, I think we could make an argument that the left is stronger now. And a lot of people like got involved because of Bernie Sanders 2016. And then we saw Bernie Sanders 2020. And both of those were defeats. And it can be very debilitating. I'm 42 years old. And I am very happy that we are where we're at. Like this kind of podcast did not exist when I ran for Congress in 2009, right? And the fact that I can come on and every guest that you have can come on and get into the weeds. We have a real problem. Let me list three things that are happening in California in response to COVID that are really, really bad. And then come back to how do we like, how do we get out of this? Like, how do we get out of this feeling that nothing can change and that we can't accomplish anything so that these three things to mention, and I, and I could probably find half a dozen easily, but one of them is just like Cuomo in New York, Newsom is incentivizing like senior care homes to take COVID patients. And this is just disastrous because they are making room in the hospitals by putting COVID patients into facilities that aren't really ready to handle them and also where people are extremely high risk. And so 40% of our, of the deaths are coming from senior care center patients and staff, and they're still sending people out to those facilities. That's just like insane, right? It just shows that like something is just fundamentally wrong. This is just just obscene. Another thing that's happening is in terms of the the kind of closure uh, and lockdown in California and then the reopening plan, part of reopening successfully is having really good testing so you know who has it, where you can isolate your cases. And in California, we have not yet had more than 55% of the testing that would be needed to open safely. And yet we're continuing to open faster and faster. And that's the standard set by the... Um, I think it's the Harvard Global Health Initiative, but it you have to test unsymptomatic people because if you're not testing unsymptomatic people, you're missing all of these carriers who seem well, but every time they sneeze or passing it, leading to more vulnerable people dying. The third thing is Newsom put together a advisory group on reopening, and that advisory group on reopening is stacked heavily with billionaires, very little representation of labor or the poor. And so we see our policy 
politics through the lens of millionaires and billionaires and giant corporations. And I, you know, I like the fact that we've talked about like having marketing backgrounds. Like I, I have a S corporation, right? It basically pays my salary. Very different from these giant corporations that are sucking up massive amounts of federal COVID relief, but then not putting the jobs back into the economy, not, you know, in some cases not paying their rent. And then you have all kinds of tension in the economy. How do we fix this? How do we get through it? Like, how do we fight it? Part of it is, I really believe, is we have to talk about the problems. We have to talk about the fact that there are solutions. I, I thought about like, like, would I really want to be governor of California? It seems like really, really stressful, right? But you have a massive staff of like experts and you have a massive budget just to figure out how to solve these problems. So the biggest thing we need to do, and this is where I, I really value groups like Justice Democrats and brand new Congress, is start to train and elevate regular people to run for office and to really contest these primaries and contest these districts. Because when regular people start talking, it makes sense, right? When Cori Bush, a nurse who like, she was like tweeting from the hospital, like while fighting COVID herself, like, you know, while hurting from COVID and then wins her primary in a blue district, right? People wake up and they listen, you know, and she was not known as being a nurse. She was known as being a Ferguson activist from 2014. And so when you start electing activists, you start electing like people with more uh, with jobs that are working class jobs who've experienced that instead of people who've been like groomed their whole life. And this is, you know, something I, I don't want to say we want to guard against it in the left, but we just have to realize that the kind of jaded, cynical political operative is not needed in our in our world, you know. There's enough of them, and they've done a bad job. They've created this detached political class that is influenced and answers to the richest in our society and has very little ties to the working class, very little ties to the poor, regardless of whether they give them lip service. Because that's what happens in blue states, is they give lots of lip service. like, uh, And then the results are very similar to what you get in, in a Republican area. I even a friend in Florida was saying, yeah, they're doing a great job because the Republicans want to get reelected. So they're doing everything they can to like make sure there's enough testing, make sure there's free food for people who need it, et cetera. And sometimes the Democrats aren't even as good because they're like, well, I'm getting reelected anyway, and I'm getting great press because the press is also the same. The press is also, you know, it's like during Bernie, we talked about like millionaires serving billionaires, like these talking heads who are totally disconnected from the reality of the communities and the cities they live in. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that disconnect, like you say, it's this huge thing where like there's this these political people. I, they're kind of like show dogs almost. I mean, like what is Beto O'Rourke? Like who who is he? He 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 is nothing but like a political device masquerading as a human, you know, and and that's all that he was ever bred for. And like that's just um, so weird me. to be in that situation. What's up, Brandon? <laughs> Excuse me, he was in a band and it was pretty good. <laughs> so there was there was some life there. There was something uh, that happened after the hacking and after the band uh, that yeah. turned him into that. Maybe it was mil- marrying a, a, uh, an heiress. I don't know. Like, uh, yeah. uh, I think I know. Cedric- I, I I would change if I married an heiress. I think. <laughs> yeah, Cedric Zavala is not a said. Uh, he's not co-signing for Beto's actions in the political sphere. Um, <laughs> you know how all that goes. You gotta you, you gotta stay true to your roots, Beto. Crank out some solos. Let's talk. <laughs> 
could you maybe talk a little bit about while we're kind of talking about like you know manufactured politicians versus like activists and people running like different kinds of campaigns so you've kind of hinted already at this a couple of times while we're talking that like you know being governor while it is like you know something that you feel like you could do if you get there isn't necessarily the entire goal here and that like obviously like a, a win is a win and to have you as the governor of California would be incredible. And I think there's no disputing that. But I think that like you also see some other objectives in running for office. Can you talk a little bit about like the ideas behind this sort of insurgent campaign, setting it up, how it's maybe a little bit different? Yeah, yeah. I um, I think that there's a, a thing in the press the traditional press, establishment press, and, and I, establishment, I think, is the wrong word when it comes to down to the level of something like a local newspaper. But once you even get to the level of like New York Times, excuse me, not New York Times, LA Times, it'll be like, uh, like LA Times, I think, is owned by a billionaire, right? And so there are then like class interests that affect how that paper is operated and, and, and even how it projects into the world, I think. And even the best journalists in that environment, it like, you know, it, it they have to adapt to it to some extent. So there's an element where, you know, you go out and you say, yo, of course I'm running to win. But for me, in running for governor of California, there will be a juncture next year where I'll have to decide because it's 2022 and the primary will be a top two primary. And, you know, it normally would be Gavin Newsom, should he run for re-election, which I expect he will, could be like a Republican, right? So I would actually have to make the case of coming in second, like probably along with Gavin and then running in a in a runoff, I would have to make a decision to have to raise a lot of money, like build out a field team, build out a really big organizing structure. And I think that it would be great to beat Gavin Newsom and to have like a populist California government. But there is not only are other reasons to run, but there are, as you said, there are specific like ideas that I want to get people thinking about. One of them uh, is something I adopted from a Canadian podcast called Seriously Wrong, which you guys may be familiar with. And they invented a concept called library socialism. And library socialism basically uses the metaphor of a library to say, well, what if you could just have anything you need and the state was like one big library or you, you know, so I could get into office and in 2023, my first act could be to just dramatically expand funding for the California library system, the state library system, but also the locals and start having all kinds of things be available through that. Could you imagine you go into the library and you're like, I don't have a house right now. You know, I like uh, lost my job and I um, got a, you know, divorce or falling out with a relative and now I don't have anywhere to live. And they said, oh, you know, we'll, we'll look at the inventory. We'll find a good place for you that'll take care of you and oh and also some job training and mental health services etc cetera, etc cetera. and start having it be like i think that the idea of library socialism is that everyone likes librarians like they're helpful they they're there to like uh be stewards of a collection but that collection could include a lot more things and then also under the umbrella of li library socialism is the idea of uh usufruct which is being able to use other people's things as long as you don't damage them like return them in the same condition and imagine that like why do the billionaires and the millionaires get all the yachts right what if the library had a bunch of the yachts and if you wanted to be on the yacht all the time you could be like a yacht captain but otherwise those yachts are like 
inner city kids are using them. Working class people are using them. They don't want to use them all the time because they've got jobs. They've got families. But it'd be nice for them to be able to go out on a yacht in the San Francisco Bay or Mission Bay in San Diego. Um, and starting to... Adriel, <laughs> you've got to be gotta be careful because somebody at Disney is listening to this. And I know you want to take on the powerful, but that sounds a little a little like nationalized Disney World. You're going to panic the real powers. <laughs> careful, man. Then you have to think like in the, the list of folks who are running for governor of California, I'm not the only one. Uh, I saw someone else uh, in the last couple of months start popping up in the listings and he's a communist activist. That's the listing as far as his, his uh, background. But I haven't heard of his campaign anywhere except in the listings. So your campaign has to enter popular consciousness. And so that's the stage of the campaign that we're at now is to get beyond the stunt that got me into the race. And there's a good chance that in 2021, I will, I may shift what office I'm running for, or I could leave the race, right? But as long as there is a needed rhetorical device, which is someone who can get into the popular consciousness who is to the left of Gavin Newsom, even if my campaign is one that we don't anticipate that we can win, basically because Newsom has access to unlimited funds and that makes it very hard to beat him. If we could get into that top two, it would be insane and incredible and mind-blowing and like everything would change in California. But even if we can't, you can force the incumbent to actually take your issues and your constituency, which is in this case, the poor, seriously, right? And start to give things to them. And so even if we were successful enough that instead of saying during COVID, he's going to house 10% of the homeless, he's going to house 50% of the homeless, that would be a dramatic, radical change that would affect 75,000 people's lives, right? Yeah. That kind of thing would be a bigger win than me being governor of California, because we would have gotten real change for real people. Laura Nicole, you're here. You, you made it through. I am. I'm sorry. I put 5 p.m. Uh, Pacific Standard Time on my phone instead of Eastern. So my apologies. So listen, forget forget it. Like this is time is an illusion, you know? It's literally not linear until someone's needed and I was needed. So my apologies on that. No, no worries. Well, you are here now. So we're just going to innovate the format and we're just going to talk to you. And Adriel can sit here and wait for a little while. Yes. Uh, <laughs> So when we talked, it was our third recording mishap in the show's history. And um, when we, when I was writing down my notes for you, I underlined, we can't afford to settle. We're going into 2022. Can you tell us a little bit about what are the political issues going into 2022 that, that are most important to you that made you decide that Adriel Hampton was the right person to get behind in the race for governor? Before COVID... I was actually uh, online touting that Adriel was my governor, and I really felt like he still is and always will be, regardless of whether or not he stays in this race. I believe in what it is that he does. I think that he is extremely passionate in regards to people, and he has a very unique way of, one, getting attention, but two, really making it a people-centered focus. One of the first things that really made my heart go pitter pat was that he wanted to nationalize Facebook and he wanted to seize the means and nationalize PGE. And for anyone who's not familiar, everyone knows Facebook, but for anyone who's not familiar with PGE, they've consistently had years of being responsible for causing fires. They've been neglected their own um, infrastructure and it usually just blows up 
They've had wildfires spread through most of Northern California. They were just found responsible for 83 counts of manslaughter, and they've accepted that. And um, people have been out of their homes. They've lost everything. And instead of being held accountable, they're currently trying to claim bankruptcy and say, womp, womp, that's it. Adriel was the only person at the time, as far as a political candidate, that said that's not acceptable and the people deserve better. He was speaking directly to Newsom as Newsom was holding press conferences, still being in support of PGE. And uh, anyone who's willing to do that has my vote completely and wholeheartedly. I I have a question. I I heard that corporations are people a few years ago. Uh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, I'm I'm a people. If I did 83 counts of manslaughter, what would happen to me? It's funny you should mention that. I feel like they would probably put you in one of the prisons that we have in California. Speaking of, Gavin Newsom has not released people in San Quentin who outside yeah, free the prisoners. Yeah, outside of all of our indigenous populations and First Nations across the country, San Quentin is now the number one location for COVID in the country as a hotspot, which is completely unacceptable, and he's not releasing people. Gavin Newsom has found ways to befriend corporations. Maybe they're people, maybe they're the evilest of people. I don't know. That can be up for debate at another time. But (laughs) he finds ways to really benefit them at our expense, and there's really no reason for it. I think having a leftist run and catch mainstream attention or catch mainstream intrigue is critical. Aside from whether or not he wins, he can adopt things. And we're here for that. I think that Adriel actually could win very easily based on policies alone. But um, again, confronting the monolith and Goliath of the Democratic Party in California and the amount of money that they have is going to be an obstacle. But I think during COVID, a lot of people are actually online. They're finding new ways to communicate. They're listening to podcasts. I know you guys have seen an expansion since. Woo woo. I think there's just different ways that we can approach things. And I'm hopeful, one, that we'll get attention and two, that people can finally get their needs met because people should not accept what he's currently offering. Can you talk about what the government is doing for people during COVID in California? Um, Sure. I mean, I think Gavin Newsom has done a job of sorts. He shut down the government (laughs) pretty early. (laughs) And um, I think that at the time, it was a good thing. He was touting that he was the uh, first to do it in the country. And he was going to be science-backed and not run or scared by politics or the presidential powers that be. That lasted for maybe about a month. He hasn't really provided full worker protections. He's created an eviction that still allows everyone in California to be evicted. He hasn't protected people for health care. He's actually expanded some horrible things for our elders and senior care and assisted living. He's actually paying private corporations to accept COVID patients, knowing that 40% of our COVID deaths have actually already been from elders and senior care staff. Why he's expanding COVID to be in those spaces, knowing it's not safe for the current populations or future is confusing. Why he's willing to give out money like that is confusing. He's increased the amount of fracking that we've had, and he's done it very sneakily. We were supposed to be on a ban, a pause, a complete 
moratorium. That's the word. And he's expanded that by, I don't know, 24 new wells and over 1,400 repumping wells. They've billed and leaked excessive amounts. He's not really doing much for food access or water. There's no statewide support for utilities, so people's utilities can still get shut off. Yeah, I think he's done what he needs to at times for appearances. He's very good at saying the right things, but when it comes to action or doing something else, he's pretty hollow. Um, So California is kind of in the shutdown phase, but not quite again. We went through our first full shutdown. We're almost there, but not quite. He refuses to do it again for economic reasons. And I understand economy is important, but he's also capable of other means to address the economy and address our needs, like taxing the rich. There's currently a bill for taxing income wealth. Adriel is about taxing wealth or income and wealth, I should say, for taxes. And yeah, like there's definitely things that he can do and he should do, but he's yet to do that because he believes corporations are people. And most of those corporations that are people are on his economic task and recovery force. And he may or may not be benefiting as well. He's also extremely rich. He's got vineyards and yachts. and We heard this thing about him being uh, Nancy Pelosi's nephew. That had us just tripping. Like, no, we were shocked. Yeah, there's actually uh, three families that are considered like California royalty. And it's the Pelosi's, the Newsom's and the Brown's. And ironically, all of them are related either by marriage or like by direct lineage. He's related to the previous Governor Brown, who was the son of a previous Governor Brown. He's related to Nancy Pelosi and all of her family. It's just, it's a very interesting thing. And they're all really, really, really wealthy. And they're not just wealthy, they're landlords. Yes. <laughs> like they, they literally, like they own the state of California and then they parade above it in these political yeah. offices. And it's like nothing has fucking changed since feudal times, right? <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, the only thing I'd say that has is they've added some characters to play alongside them. Feinstein and her husband. Her husband actually owns CBRE, which is huge and everywhere in this country. But he gets federal contracts to redo the Postal Service. And he gets federal contracts to actually buy eminent domain land. And then he sells it back to the state sometimes for an obscene profit. And then the state builds on that. But... He and his wife have made excessively large sums of money doing uh, some very legal, but to me, inappropriate things. And I'm also encouraged by the fact that Adriel, aside from having library socialism and expanding the minds of the population for what we should want and accept and tolerate, is trying to address that as well. There are things that we can do to end this like weird corruption shit that's just been going on for entirely too long. Like they make money for no reason and they make obscene amounts of it off of us. And it's time that that changes. Let me tell you, like this is so Westeros. You started with three families. <laughs> now we're expanding the cast. We've got the, now we know the servants. Like now we know who's coming after them. Like this is this is very HBO. Like you got the houses and then the sub houses that swear the loyalty to the. I'm ready to be a dragon because the dragon was definitely given a bad rep, but the dragon cleansed out some things so people could start anew. Lauren, you... the dragon is the means of destruction. <laughs> <laughs> Lauren, you can be the dragon. Think uh, about it. Let me tell you. Starring role, uh, Adriel can be Daenerys. <laughs> You know, <laughs> <laughs> so, 
Wait a minute. What? <laughs> I, wait, this I did a... say burn everything down. <laughs> literally did say that during our, yeah. Gotta say, going in that direction. Maybe the Mad King was on to something. I mean, uh, spoiler alert, the end oh of Game God. of Thrones is kind of lib. Uh, hey, uh, don't spoil anything. Somebody might, they might watch it one day. But all anyway. I said was that it was lib. Very lib. That, okay, to be fair, that could be said about most works of fiction, which is fine. <laughs> uh, spoiler alert, the West Wing is kind of lib. <laughs> it's true. Um, I, anyway. I never watched it, and that's why I'm still, you know, I'm a healthy leftist. Yeah, that's true. You saved so, you saved so much energy. <laughs> Can you talk about organizations that you've been a member of? What does it take to start an organization? Because you, you've you done that before. I um, mean, what are the first steps that a person needs to do if they're trying to get on the road that you're in? Um, maybe those are two slightly different questions. But if they want to start an organization or if they want to become a policy advisor, what do you need to do? Well, I'd say to, to become a policy advisor first, find somebody like Adriel. I'm super passionate about what I do, but Adriel is also super passionate about what he does. And he was amazing in the fact that he gave me a lot of leeway. So he's extremely supportive of what it is that we're trying to do. And as a result of us having this new space and, and this new thing, he's given me a lot of leeway. So to be a policy advisor, find somebody like Adriel. Um, and number two, be yourself. I think that my previous experience from creating a nonprofit for unhoused, as well as just interacting and networking with so many people in that process across the state and West Coast has really helped to provide me with connections and resources. So I'd say outside of, you know, your network is your net worth type thing, contacting or following people, whether that's on social media with Twitter or Facebook, checking out blogs or podcasts, just trying to connect with people that are in sync with your passion and also slightly a little different ones that might challenge you because those that challenge you are actually able to fine tune your arguments and or your policies to make them that much stronger and to be that more inclusive. So a lot of the policies that I think we're creating right now are amazing and critical, but they're also a reflection of the people that I've interacted with, whether that is on the streets or whether that is in City Hall or whether that is for our state capital in regards to homeless human rights. Um, we've just, we've had a lot of things and we've approached a lot of people in the process. And I think that that's really been helpful to show that there are avenues. I think with policies, everyone seems to think that you need to be like a lawyer. And I think that's, it's good to know law, like you definitely should. But I don't think you need to be a lawyer to say, hey, people should eat and people no. should a space. <laughs> and maybe instead of Nancy Pelosi having an $85,000 refrigerator, make that four of them in her house. Maybe we should have something for other people like, I don't know, food. Anything. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> Anything would be an improvement <laughs> on right now, right? So literally just something for people. Yeah. yeah. And so, or to say maybe if our current system, as far as taxes, already says that the rich people can show that they've gotten stocks, assets, all the liquid stuff, right? Maybe our government should say, since we're already collecting that information, but we say we can't touch it, maybe we should build a policy that says, since we're already collecting all that data, let's find a way to tax that. Because it's not hidden. The only stuff that's hidden is things that are offshore. 
and offshore, we can always just charge them for having something offshore. Like, I don't know about you guys, but me as a normal person, I have not been able to set up an account in the Cayman Islands or in Swiss banks. Any of you? <laughs> no. No. Okay. I also think that if I were to do that, they probably wouldn't accept my like $35 a month to just, mm. right? Like you have to have a large sum of money to do that. So if our federal government knows that these people are doing that, which they do, it's always published in like Panama papers or some random leak that comes out, we can charge them for that. Like we don't have to know how much they have. We can charge them. We can charge them for a lot of things. And to say that people in policy work need to have this, this great understanding of law, maybe not so much. We need to figure out where the flaws are and how we can address that. And I also think that limiting people based on their uh, law degrees is extremely classist. Like maybe part of the problem is that we've had people with law degrees, but there are law degrees that aren't in our favor or there are people that aren't in our favor. It's time that we review some of this stuff. And if we're really trying to shake things up, then why not have someone who has a completely different background? So yeah, I'd say if you're really passionate about something and you want to see something change, uh, which is what got me inspired to be in a nonprofit and start that, that's the same type of, of work and passion that could be policies. Um, and yeah, don't be afraid to do it, especially now that we have time, like do it. Obviously, like there's no advice that you can give. You can't duplicate yourself. And hopefully the next time that we do this, like we'll have you do 40 minutes and then Adriel can come in and be like, yeah, what she said, um, which is always <laughs> which is always a good <laughs> Absolutely. for uh, for interviews. But listen, so to what both of y'all. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So to That's both of y'all, uh, Lauren, give your plugs. What do people need to do to follow you and be more in touch with what you're doing? Um, well, one, I don't think people really need to follow me. That sounds kind of like powerful. Um, I'd love it if they did. You can follow me or find me on Twitter. I'm at the letter L S T A N D S, the number four. Lovely. L stands for lovely. Boom, boom. You can also find me at the Lefty League. I love doing all of those things there with Adriel. Otherwise, I'm on the streets and kind of uh, in between things now with COVID and how we can interact with our in-house in a safer way. So you can find me online with our, or I should say with, but competing or holding our city council and mayor to account. And yeah, it's kind of it for me. Yeah, listen, Lauren, listen, I'm just telling them they click the blue button. I'm not saying they got to start a cult for you or anything oh, like that. Thank, thank like, you. Oh, if I'm really that's ready. That's a for lot of pressure. Yeah. I'm really ready for that. That sounds really intense. I mean, I'll take it. Flowers and everything, but I don't know. It's a lot. As long as there's no work. They try to suck you in with work when you start a cult. It's a whole thing. Adriel, I'm sure you know what's up. Can you give your plug? Adrian. Yeah, yeah. Folks can find me on Twitter at Adriel Hampton. That's uh, one of the places I'm most active. And I'm also going to just do like a totally shameless off-topic plug. Folks should check out playthepromisedland.com. That's a, yeah, another ooh. project I'm working on. I'm hoping that by, you know, at least this time next year, my main job besides advancing anti-austerity and library social in California, I'll be helping run a video game studio that's built around a mutual aid model. Right now, most of the money from gaming goes to like Wall Street investors. Uh -huh. Surprise, surprise, there's a theme. And with a friend in New York, 
Uh, I'm working on setting up a company to use the revenue from video games to fight climate change and fight for left causes. Uh, and the first game is going to be a free-to-play pixel art uh, farming game. And you can find that there. But follow me at, at Adriel Hampton, and I'll talk about that and the governor's race, and I'll swear at different politicians, and it's a lot of fun. That's very rad. So obviously, we're not safe for wonks. Brandon, Kennedy, everybody's here. Yep. Um, and all you've got to do to get more of this sweet content is patreon.com slash not safe. We're raising some money to get Rachel a new uh, chair set up so that she is uh, able to recline and not like break her back as she is recording, literally breaking her back for our entertainment and amusement. And if you sign up, you get like extra episodes. You get uh to hang out with us a little more often we've got a secret area of the discord there's lots of stuff going on so uh, we encourage you to do that and it's been another episode so thank you for listening we'll hang out again as soon as possible um and we do live streams practically every day monday to friday so you can't miss us thanks for listening bye bye